Can you think of any laws that give government the power to make decisions about uh, the male body? I'm not a, I'm not a thinking of any right now. So. Yeah. Keep thinking, Judge. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Oh. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, and in Cottage Grove on KSO, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, you guys are voting next week, right? In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising and Detour Talk. Oh, Radio Free Brooklyn, you guys will be voting next week as well. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around... Swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the world-famous, famous, famous Bradcast. Um, We had an election on Thursday, yes, Thursday, in Delaware, and I am delighted to report, sort of delighted to report, that uh, no problems that I've heard of so far in Delaware, in the tiny state of Delaware, but one of those reasons, Desi Doyen, that's whose voice you just heard, (laughs) um, is because they use 100% unverifiable touchscreens. So... Uh, I guess it's good that we haven't heard about any problems. Did any actual problems happen? Was there any uh, changes of votes? Do the votes actually reflect the will of the voter? We will never know because that's how little they uh, care about the voters in Delaware, that they still force them to vote on those systems. That said... If we hear about problems as things move forward, as ever, we will let you know. But for now, the results being reported, and this won't take long because I said, as I said, it's a small state. uh, Democratic Senator Tom Carper, as expected, managed to win his primary against progressive challenger Kerry Harris. It was hoped by some progressives that the LGBTQ Air Force veteran might be able to unseat Carper, given uh, several of the surprise victories over incumbent Democrats in uh, in primaries this year. But alas, it was not to be. Carper handily defeated Harris, according to Delaware's unverifiable touchscreen voting system. He will run against Robert Arlett, who won the GOP nod on Thursday, though Delaware is very blue and the Senate seat is considered to be solidly Democratic according to the Cook Political Report this November. 
Representative Lisa Blunt Rochester, a uh, Democrat, faced no uh, House uh, uh, Congresswoman, uh, faced no challengers within her party for Delaware's one single at-large U.S. House district. In November, she will face a Republican named Scott Walker. No, not that one. A different Republican named Scott Walker. Uh, He won his GOP primary on Tuesday. You notice how all of the uh, Republicans seem to have either Scott or Rick in their name? They do kind of have generic guy names. Kind of they do, don't they? Uh, But otherwise, that's it. Small state. Pretty much everything else is expected to go Democratic this November uh, in, uh, in, in Delaware. By the way, tiny state, one single U.S. House district, and yet they have as many senators and therefore those two additional uh, votes in the Electoral College as we do out here in California with, what, something like 40 38 million? million people. 38 we million are, people. Uh, our population is as large as Canada. 54 U.S. House districts, I think. Am I right about that? Do you I know? I think so. Have I stumped you? Uh, <laughs> I think it's 54. Um, but so, yeah, we also only get two senators. Not that I'm complaining, but I'm complaining. Anyway, um, I wished uh, that all election days were as easy as Delaware's, but for the fact that it's impossible to know if a single vote was cast, as per any voter's intent because of the system they use, um, you know what? If I was a Republican who lived in Delaware, which seems to go so Democratic uh, in recent years, I'd be ticked about that. Just saying. All right. uh, The coming week. Uh, will be our mercifully final week of primary elections before the midterms. Federal primaries will be held on Tuesday in New Hampshire, Tuesday, September 11, and in uh, Rhode Island on Wednesday, September 12th, yes, Wednesday, and on Thursday, yes, Thursday, in New York for its state and local contests there, including that Democratic Party primary challenge from progressive activist and actress Cynthia Nixon against two-term New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who hopes to uh, survive for a third term. All right, um, some uh, we, we're going to get to the uh, some Supreme Court stuff here, some Brett Kavanaugh stuff here shortly. Amanda Marcotte will be joining us from Salon. But before we get there... Uh, A little bit more voting news, and in this case, some good news for a change on a case that we covered about two weeks ago in Florida, where a number of voting rights and Latino uh, groups had filed suit against the Florida Secretary of State, Ken Detzner, hand uh, chosen, by the way, by Florida Governor Rick Scott. There's another Rick and another Scott, all in one name. And uh, he's running for the U.S. Senate. And his uh, secretary of state that he chose was sued by a number of groups, along with uh, 32 counties in the state who were also sued for failing to provide election information in Spanish. And this is particularly of note this year because it affects some 50,000 dislocated Puerto Ricans in the state who relocated there after Hurricane Maria and uh, who have been having some trouble registering to vote and participating in elections in Florida because the counties, those 32 counties, had refused to print materials in Spanish. 
along with the uh, English ballots. And so uh, that's required by Section 4E of the Voting Rights Act. And these groups had tried to get those counties to do the right thing. To comply with the law. They wouldn't. And so they had to sue. Uh, as we discussed on this program about two weeks ago with uh, Stuart Nafee of Demos, who was uh, his uh, Demos is leading the uh, legal challenge there. So we've got some good news on Friday via Huffington Post. Uh, Sam Levine, who reports it this way, a federal judge in Florida issued an injunction requiring 32 counties in the state to provide sample language ballots. The plaintiffs in the case said that Puerto Ricans who moved to Florida were being denied access to the ballot under the Voting Rights Act. Um, and then uh, Levine or Levine, I'm not sure. I don't know. I've never heard him say his name out loud. Goes on to say, uh, I am not a lawyer, but this is the most incredible opening to a court opinion I have ever seen. And he quotes the first paragraph. Uh, Desi Doyne, do you know the uh, the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? I do. Where uh, he, I guess, lives the same day over, over and, and over and, and over, over again. And, oh, All yes, right. oh, yes. Here's how this injunction starts, this order granting motion for preliminary injunction. Uh, the first paragraph. Here we are again. The clock hits 6 a.m. Sonny and Cher's I Got You Babe starts playing. Denizens of and visitors to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, eagerly await the groundhog's prediction. And the state of Florida is alleged to violate federal law in its handling of elections. Oh, man. Meow. <laughs> um, so uh, U.S. District Judge Mark Walker was not happy about this. Uh, and uh, he notes in his in his ruling here, quote, while lost on some... Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Wow. Yeah. So not happy, but good news for voters in Florida. Yes, U.S. citizens in Florida who were forced to move from uh, Puerto Rico to Florida in no small part because of the crappy handling of the situation by Donald Trump and our federal government. And also the judge noting that Florida keeps doing this, trying to suppress people's votes over and over and over again. That's remarkable. It's election year. That's what they do. Glad the federal judges are starting to notice. Uh, meanwhile, let's move halfway across the continent to the great state of Kansas, where an Olathe, Kansas man running for a seat in the state's House of Representatives was arrested on Thursday on a charge of election fraud, according to the Kansas City Star. Adam Thomas, 35 years old, is the Republican candidate for the 26th District House seat in the state House of Representatives. He was charged in Johnson County District Court with election perjury. The charge filed against Thomas is a felony and alleges that uh, in May... Thomas submitted a false uh, falsified document to state or county election officials. He was arrested on Thursday morning and he was booked into the Johnson County Jail. Court documents that were available on uh, Thursday, the KC Star says, do not specify the allegations against Thomas. But this summer, a Democratic lawmaker called for an investigation into Thomas, alleging that he provided false information about his residency when he filed to run for the office. Now, we have seen candidates for office 
uh, lie, frankly, about their residency before or buy a little house that they don't actually intend to live in so they can run in a particular district. So this is not totally shocking, although the fact that he was arrested and and thrown in jail is uh, kind of surprising. So we'll try to see what those charges actually say. But the reason I'm uh, highlighting this is because a spokesperson for Chris Kobach, you remember him? Oh, yes. The Kansas Secretary of State who has uh, made his career essentially out of his supposed fight against voter fraud. Uh, Certainly that was uh, how he ran for Secretary of State and what was, you know, central to his uh, his role during his time in office as Kansas Secretary of State. Now he's. Uh, the state's Republican nominee for governor. But uh, spokesman for Chris Kobach declined to comment entirely on the arrest of a uh, of a Republican who is running for office who committed election fraud. Suddenly they don't care yeah. about election fraud Weird, when it's Republicans huh? doing it. Wow. Kobach, by the way, is the nation's only secretary of state who has the power to actually charge people, to actually prosecute people. With election fraud, Uh, that is a power that he got for the secretary of state after convincing the state legislature to give him that power to prosecute um, what he has for years claimed to be a massive epidemic of voter fraud in the state. Nonetheless, after eight years of office, Kobach has I think he's been able to uh, get about 10 convictions in all of those years with millions of votes cast, some epidemic. Rep, uh, State Rep Vic Miller, the Democratic attorney who originally called for the investigation of Thomas, said that he was glad to see, quote, that the Johnson County District Attorney has more political courage than apparently our Secretary of State, who claims to be so much against election fraud. The uh, Kansas GOP, as of yesterday, had uh, given no comment, had no comment on the arrest Uh, to the Casey Star, and the charge was filed by the Johnson County District Attorney Steve Howe, who is a Republican, but it was not filed by Kobach. So there's that. Uh, Finally, before we get to my guest here today, uh, back in uh, just incredible goings-on over the past week in the U.S. Senate, um, On uh, Thursday night, we've never seen anything like this, where senators had to do this sort of thing. Uh, Senator Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey, on Thursday night released new batches of confidential documents from Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's work uh, for uh, former President George W. Bush. uh, Democrats have charged that just 4% of the documents from Kavanaugh's years working in the George W. Bush White House have been made available to them at all. Many of them they cannot release to the public because they've been marked by the Republicans as so-called committee confidential. Well, on uh, Thursday, Booker released more of those emails from Kavanaugh's time as a White House lawyer, uh, risking uh, expulsion from the Senate in doing so. The emails, which are a combined uh, 26 pages, are marked committee confidential, uh, meaning they have not been cleared for public release or to even be discussed publicly during a Senate committee hearing 
confirmation hearing for a U.S. Supreme Court justice. So they can look at the, you know, Booker can look at them, but he can't even talk about them. He can't even ask the the uh, the nominee about them. So he said, the hell with this. I'm releasing this stuff. Um, he said, here are two additional committee confidential documents that have been kept out of public view until now. He released them on Twitter in one four page tranche released on Thursday night. Kavanaugh is trying to uh, is seen trying to set up a meeting with a guy named Manny Miranda, who was uh, back then in the early 2000s, a GOP Senate aide who had hacked. Democratic files who had hacked files of senators who were working um, to oppose judicial nominees from the Bush administration. Kavanaugh was trying to set up a meeting with him. Kavanaugh has been grilled about what knowledge, if any, he had of Miranda's actions in stealing files from you know Democratic Senator Pat Leahy and others uh, before they had been released to the public, stealing the emails. Um, and uh, this material has been marked as committee confidential. Why would that be kept confidential? Is that a national security issue? They were from 2002. So 16 years later, is there any legitimate reason that uh, those should not be released to the public before this man, Kavanaugh, who worked with a guy who stole Democratic senators emails uh, before he receives a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. We're talking about tens of thousands of documents in another tranche that was released on Thursday. Kavanaugh in uh, 2003 forwards an op ed which describes Roe v. Wade as, quote, bad law. Well, I guess we know why they don't want that to be released. Uh, we'd hate for senators to ask Kavanaugh about why he was interested in this article um, and why he uh, this article that described Roe v. Wade that assured the right uh, for women to choose an abortion if they want, why he uh, you know wanted to forward on that article describing Roe v. Wade as bad law. But again, it has nothing to do with national security. So why was it being withheld from the public? Why does Senator Cory Booker have to risk expulsion from the U.S. Senate for releasing so-called committee confidential documents that should have been made available to the public before these hearings? This is not a legitimate process, whether you like Kavanaugh or Trump or not. This would not be tolerated had this been a Democratic nominee to the U.S. Senate and had Democrats wanted to rush it through before they possibly lost their majority. In an upcoming election, it wouldn't be tolerated now uh, by Republicans and it should not be uh, tolerated now by Democrats or any any American. They are going to jam this guy through come hell and high water. The uh, release on Thursday comes after Booker had sparked a firefight earlier in the day when he uh, warned during the Judiciary Committee hearings that he was going to be releasing these documents, he has defended his actions, arguing that the document process set up by Republicans on the Judiciary panel is, quote, a sham. And it's frankly hard to argue with that. So that's the circus that we've been witnessing in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee all week. And of course, all of this matters big time. If Kavanaugh is seated, as is most likely, he will become the fifth vote on the court to move it far to the right and is likely to overturn 
uh, long-time precedent in the bargain, what some call settled law, though when Republicans do so, they don't really mean it. They don't really see it as settled law. On everything from the Voting Rights Act to LGBTQ rights to Roe v. Wade. Now, since I see the entire process to add yet another Republican to an already stolen Republican seat in a way that is being rushed to avoid the possible loss of the Republicans majority in uh, in November, I've, I've been loath to even entertain the actual substance of Kavanaugh's judicial philosophy such that he has one. Um, because that seems to legitimize the process. But as so much now is on the line, I think it's important that we make clear how high the stakes are. And to that end, Amanda Marcotte has been slogging through hours of Senate testimony this week uh, and discussing the ramifications, particularly for uh, women in this country. We'll speak to her about what, if anything, we have learned after this past long week about Kavanaugh, about the Democratic opposition to him, and about the... Republicans breaking all precedent and tradition to jam through another Supreme Court justice with a lifetime appointment affecting our nation for a generation. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh once questioned whether Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion rights ruling, was, quote, settled law of the land during his time in the George W. Bush administration, according to the New York Times this week, according to a trove of documents deemed committee confidential and not released to the public, which were shared with the Times on Wednesday night, Kavanaugh made the comment in a March 2003 email when he was working as a White House lawyer. The email was part of a group of records given to the Senate Judiciary Committee earlier this week ahead of Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, but those documents were blocked from being given to the public or even discussed by the senators on the Judiciary Committee by way of their committee confidential classifications, which uh, was subsequently ignored by a number of Democratic senators like Cory Booker, Maisie Hirono and Dick Durbin, who all risked expulsion from the U.S. Senate this past week by releasing those documents, which they argue are in the public interest and had no good reason to be classified in the first place as they pose no threat to national security or anything of the sort. As illustrated by the email regarding Kavanaugh's feelings about Roe v. Wade, Kavanaugh, while a Republican activist then working at the George W. Bush White House, was editing a document in 2003 that was written by supporters of a conservative 
so-called conservative judicial nominee, and the supporters hoped that anti-abortion women would sign off on the opinion piece. The editorial had suggested that, quote, legal scholars across the board accept that Roe v. Wade and its progeny are the settled law of the land. But Kavanaugh pushed back on that assumption in his email response and suggested that sentence should be deleted entirely. He said, I am not sure that all legal scholars refer to Roe as the settled law of the land at the Supreme Court level, since the court can always overrule its precedent, and three current justices on the court would do so, he wrote. That's just one of the seemingly contradictory pieces of information that Republicans sought to hide from the public in blocking the release and use of tens of thousands of documents from Kavanaugh's time as an activist legal advisor and then staff secretary in the George W. Bush White House. That, as Kavanaugh has continued to cite his claimed belief in the importance of Supreme Court precedent and appears to have told both Maine's Susan Collins and Alaska's uh, Lisa Murkowski that he believed Roe v. Wade was, quote, settled law, even while not mentioning that settled law means little, in fact, to those on the highest court in the land with the power to overturn it. Senator Kamala Harris pressed Kavanaugh on exactly that at one point during this past week's hearings. When referring to cases as settled law, you have described them as precedent and, quote, precedent on precedent. You've mentioned that a number of times yeah. um, today and during the course of the hearing. As a factual matter, can five Supreme Court justices overturn any precedent at any time if a case comes before them on that issue? Um, you start with a system of precedent that's rooted in the Constitution. I know, but just as a factual matter, five justices, if in agreement, can overturn any precedent. Wouldn't you agree? Senator, there's a reason why the Supreme Court doesn't do that. But, but do you agree that it can do that? Well, it has overruled precedent at various times in our history. The most prominent example being Brown versus Board of Education, the Erie case, which overruled Swift versus Tyson. There so are we times. both agree. We both agree the court has done it and can do it. Boy, he was really working hard not to admit that, yes, the court has done it and the court can do it. Senator Harris there went on to illustrate that not only uh, can they overturn precedent, but they can overturn decades-old precedent, as Kavanaugh admitted when he cited the Korematsu case, which had allowed the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. That nearly 80-year-old court precedent was finally overturned just this year by the Supreme Court. Happily in that case, because it was a shameful ruling, but it underscores the fact that uh, settled law, in truth, means very little. On Thursday night, Senator Cory Booker released more so-called committee confidential documents from Kavanaugh, one of which finds Kavanaugh forwarding an op-ed which describes Roe v. Wade as, quote, bad law, citing it as a, quote, interesting piece from Stephen Carter, who is not conservative. So do any of these facts actually matter as they have come out this week in the uh, U.S. Uh, Senate regarding Kavanaugh's record? Or are the hearings this week little more than a sham before the Republican Party in the Senate intends to confirm this judge with a disturbing and largely hidden record before they may lose their very slim majority this November as uh, longtime Judiciary Committee Republican Orrin Hatch 
admitted as much this week that Kavanaugh was going to be confirmed no matter what. That before even a single question had been asked of him. That was also confirmed today as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that, yes, Kavanaugh would be confirmed during an interview today with right-wing talker Hugh Hewitt. Here to discuss all of that and more is Salon political writer Amanda Marcotte. She has been slogging through the hearings all week. She is also author of the newly published book, Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters, set on rat-effing liberals, America, and the truth itself. Amanda Marcotte, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me. I wish you guys would stop writing books with titles that I can't actually say on the radio. But uh, congratulations on that. I want to talk to you about that in a bit. Uh, but let me talk a big, big picture first here. Uh, you've been watching and, and writing at Salon and tweeting all week about the Kavanaugh hearings. While I, I suspect most Americans have not been able to follow much of the hours and hours of testimony in the U.S. Senate uh, Judiciary Committee. So. Uh, two, maybe three uh, big picture questions here first, Amanda. After a week of watching these hearings, what, if anything, have you learned about Brett Kavanaugh that you did not know uh, before the week began? Um, gosh, well, that, to be fair, I've been covering Kavanaugh since the nomination was announced. Mm -hmm. So not much, not much. Um, I, you know, but I'm an unusual person. I, I hope that people that have been following the coverage and been watching the hearings, the sort of more ordinary uh, Americans who are not knee-deep in this stuff mm -hmm. all day, every day, uh, took away from it that Kavanaugh um, almost certainly was picked by Donald Trump precisely to shield him from any accountability for criminal actions that he may have committed. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big takeaway for me. Uh, of this week and and uh, a couple more along this uh, along these lines uh, what if anything have you learned about the Democrats opposition to Brett Kavanaugh that you might not have known before the week began well before this started um, there was a lot of fear uh, I think amongst on the left especially that the Democrats were just gonna roll over and and not fight on this one you know because it, it seems like it's a done deal already um, that didn't happen. Um, the Senate Democrats came at this in a way that I don't think I've ever seen them do anything of this sort before. Mm. They, they had an organized strategy. Um, I think they executed it pretty well. Whether or not it was going to be effective, um, it was always a long shot. Um, but they fought, and they fought hard. I, I, I've been very impressed by them. Mm. And, uh, well, maybe third here, is there uh, anything then about the Republicans at this point that was revealed in the hearings this week that we didn't already know about before the week began? Um, nothing new, but I would say every time I actually turn on my TV and, and, and kind of watch Republicans and kind of engage in the level that I've been engaging now, I am struck all anew at how shameless they are. Mm. And and that's saying someone uh, saying something for someone who wrote a, a book called Troll Nation and the rest of the stuff that I can't say. Uh, I have been somewhat loath, Amanda, to to sort of get into the actual substance of the hearings uh, and the Kavanaugh testimony above and beyond the the absurdity of it all that I think you have been also writing about this week. The rushed process, the withheld documents, the procedural battles. 
over whether these hearings should be taking place at all. Uh, Given that discussing the substance, it seems to me, and I'd love your thoughts on this, but it seems to me discussing the substance of of Kavanaugh's position uh, on on all manner of things, whether I agree with them or not, seems to lend legitimacy to what I see as an illegitimate process in my mind. Um, Nonetheless, you wrote at uh, at Salon this week that Republicans seem to have a strategy of promoting Kavanaugh not as a hard right jurist here, but actually as a champion of 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 women, of progressive issues, in, including a fight for equal rights for women. How did that work out? Did anybody buy what Kavanaugh and the Republicans were selling along those lines this week? Well, I have to assume conservatives don't buy it, or they would be balking at this nomination, right? <laughs> Um, if you were if you were a space alien and you just dropped in and were watching these Senate hearings for God only knows what reason, mm-hmm. you know, you would get the impression that the Republicans think of Brett Kavanaugh as a liberal lion. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all they do is they talk about how anti-racist he is, how pro-equality the cases that he's ruled on that they've highlighted are the the three or four extremely rare ones where he sided with working people or oppressed people or people, you know, trying to get health care or anything like that. The, again, the tiny minority of his cases, um, they, they barely go a minute without talking about how much he loves women and how he's practically a feminist and he's hired all these female law clerks and whatnot. It's been kind of surreal because... Obviously, they don't believe a word of it, because if they actually thought he was any of the things they were presenting him as, they wouldn't have mm-hmm. nominated him. Right, yes, yeah. Uh, and obviously, I don't, you know, there's no indication that the Democrats believe any of this either, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, as the days have gone on, the, Den- the Senate Democrats have gotten fiercer and fiercer and less patient um, in their questioning of Kavanaugh. They've They've basically been accusing him of being a far-right jurist, which is accurate. They've, they, I don't think they really pulled their punches, um, you know, some more than others. But even Diane Feinstein was particularly aggressive mm-hmm. in, in painting him as a threat to women's health and safety, which he is. Uh, you write that Kavanaugh had explained at length uh, historically that abortion rights specifically had been reaffirmed many times in the Supreme Court's history, uh, but he failed to explain how he felt about it. Um, that sounds similar to him telling uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine during his meeting with her that uh, he believed Roe v. Wade was settled law, but... He seems to have failed to mention that the Supreme Court can very easily, very simply overturn set a law any time. Uh, as, as you heard in that uh, clip with uh, Kamala Harris, uh, his approach seems more akin to the Republican activist that he spent years as versus a legitimate legal thinker. Uh, am I right about that? Is there any reason to believe at this point he is anything but an activist on these issues? And 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 I guess the second part of that question is, is it possible that someone like Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski could possibly believe his nonsense about settled law? Yeah, I mean, he's using the same rhetorical trick that other Republican justices have used in the past, which is if you ask them how they're going to vote on abortion rights, they launch into a history lecture about the history of abortion rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's akin to me, if you ask me 
who I'm going to vote for for president. And I said, well, the current president is a Republican. It's basically the same thing. Not saying who <laughs> you know? you're going to vote for, just, just making some observation. and ma- Yeah, and hoping that implies. <laughs> right, that you're going to vote Republican. Yeah, and, 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 and it's ridiculous, but, um, you know, what he does is he just does it every single time you ask him, and eventually people give up. And, and yeah, that's what he's trying to do is imply that he's going to uphold Roe. He clearly has no intention of doing it. That's why the leaked emails were such a big deal. What did uh, Kavanaugh had attempted to block this uh, 17-year-old woman? Uh, it was an undocumented immigrant from obtaining a legal abortion while she was being held in detention, uh, even though, and this was while he was uh, on the D.C. Court of Appeals, uh, even though a a lower federal court in Texas had cleared this uh, young lady to do so. She had cleared every legal standard for this legal procedure. Uh, How did he justify that this week or defend that uh, really radical and, yes, activist, and I had to keep coming back to that, but, yes, activist position? Did he... Uh, did he even attempt to uh, to defend it, or was this one of the questions where he said, well, this may come before me, so I, I shouldn't comment? No, he did defend it because his stance about I can't comment was always on hypotheticals, and he'd actually made uh, an argument in this case, so he couldn't really pretend like he didn't have an opinion. Mm-hmm. He did try to defend it over and over again because the Democrats kept hammering at it, and I think the reason they kept hammering at it was that his not only was it, you know, a, uh, a inhumane case, but his legal reasoning was really bad. Um, he kept arguing that the girl had not, that he was sort of relying on the precedent of parental consent and, like, this, this notion that the law says parental consent is important and has been upheld a number of times. But as was repeatedly pointed out, and he just kind of blew past it and ignored this fact, the girl had actually met that standard in the state of Texas. She had gotten a judicial bypass, which the court has said has to be offered to girls who can't um, get parental consent for either reasons of unable to get a parent or, or they're fearful of their safety. And in this case, the girl had a little bit of both going on. Mm-hmm. Um so basically, you know, that's a long way of saying he lied. <laughs> um, he lied over and over and over again about his reasoning in this. Because um, I don't think he's a stupid man, and you would have to be stupid to think that this girl had not, you know, met every legal standard thrown her way in order to get this abortion. He, he was shown over and over again this week to be a liar. And I think and that's not a, you know, an opinion because I may or may not like him. Uh, he was shown in these various documents that have been uh, released over the past few days that were kept committee confidential initially uh, that he has lied about his previous positions, that he has, in fact, lied uh, to the Senate uh, itself during previous testimony in uh, earlier years for his uh, judgeship on the uh, D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, but I want to stick, Amanda, for a moment on this issue of his of the danger that he presents. I think you, you said that he uh, he poses a threat to women's health and safety. There was this kind of uh, 
remarkable uh, exchange here, again, with Kamala Harris, Democratic senator from uh, California, and Judge Kavanaugh, where she asked uh, if he could think of any similar government intervention uh, on a medical procedure related to men. Let me let me just play uh, that quick clip and I'll get your thoughts on it. Can you think of any laws that give government the power to make decisions about uh, the male body? Um. I'm happy to answer a uh, more specific question. But Male versus female. <laughs> there are um, medical procedures. Okay. Uh, that, the government, that the government has the power to make a decision about a man's oh, body? I thought you were asking about medical procedures no, that are I, unique to I, men. I can, I, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the question. Can you think of any laws that give the government the power to make decisions about the male body? I'm not a. I'm not a thinking of any right now, Senator. So Amanda Marcotte, <laughs> uh, pretty stark. Uh, what, what do you make of that exchange? You know, I really liked it. Um, I think that one thing that um, you know, reproductive rights activists have been highlighting all this week, and, and some feminist journalists, is that Kavanaugh's views on these issues are not about being pro-life at all. Um, you know, I think a lot of people hide behind that, and they say it's about fetal life and whatnot. But he used language during uh, a, a, a moment when Ted Cruz was asking him questions where he stigmatized the use of contraception mm. um, by calling it abortion-inducing drugs, which is flatly false. And, and that's, a, that's an anti-choice term. That's a, mm -hmm. a religious right term that's used to... to stigmatize women who use the birth control pill, IUDs, and, and other female-controlled kinds of contraception by equating the prevention of pregnancy with the termination of pregnancy. And I, I think that that really kind of drives home here that, like, Kavanaugh's views on these issues aren't really rooted in some kind of, like, you know, precious attitude about fetal life, but really are about this notion that women can't be trusted to make their own decisions. And and the other thing I would say on that is, and I reported on this at Salon, is there is a case from a few years back where Kavanaugh was actually asked to rule on a case that involved two, three women that were disabled that had the government had forced medical procedures on them without consulting them. Mm. And two of the women had been forced to have abortions against their will. And Kavanaugh ruled in favor of the government. He <laughs> ruled against these women. So, again, I cannot underline wow. enough that this is about the fact that he just does not see women as the custodians of their bodies. He also uh, was using the right-wing phrase uh, throughout the week, abortion on demand. Uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal attempted to call him out on that uh, for it. Um, what's wrong with that phrase? And what, what does it actually tell us uh, about Kavanaugh's mindset here? Is that the same thing? Uh, I mean, d does it just underscore that he is not a legal thinker here, but as much as a uh, Republican activist on these issues? I mean, that's a half a breath away from Rush Limbaugh's drive-by abortions phrase, frankly, it seems to me. Yeah, exactly. That phrase is a meaningless phrase, and anti-choicers use it because they want to invoke misogynist stereotypes about women making demands. They want to imply that women who have abortions are demanding unreasonable B-words, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and that's just ridiculous. Nobody says, um, you know, wisdom tooth extractions on demand. <laughs> Nobody right. says vaccines on demand. I, I mean, it's abortion is given out in the same way that all other medical procedures are given out. You consult with a medical professional. Um, you make that determination with, you know, the help of a medical professional. You don't just walk into the store and ask for an abortion. Has uh, Susan Collins of Maine and, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, they both have previously said they would not seat someone on the court who would over, would be the vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, but both seem to be pretty open to seating Kavanaugh. Uh, neither of these uh, women are on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, so we haven't gotten to hear from them uh, you know, this week. But have you seen or heard any response from either of their offices? Uh, you know, if any of the testimony this week may have moved them one way or another in their in their thinking? No, um, I don't think that there's any reason to expect that they're going to respond till the confirmation hearings are over if they were going to. You know, I, I, I would say this. I, these hearings are in a lot of ways and should be understood as an elaborate theater to give Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski cover to claim that they're pro-choice while voting essentially to overturn Roe versus Wade. The whole charade that they're doing around Kavanaugh trying to conceal, use these bad faith arguments to pretend that he's not going to immediately vote against abortion rights the first chance he gets, that's all just so that they can go back to their voters and say, well, he told me he thought Roe was settled law. How was I supposed to know? I don't even know how effective that is, but that's the whole point of this entire charade. Um, so, you know, some pro-choice organizations are running ads this weekend in newspapers in Maine and Alaska highlighting the email where Kavanaugh reveals his true feelings about Roe, mm -hmm. saying it's not settled law. Um, and, and hopefully that will that pressure campaign will have some effect. And uh, as both Collins and Murkowski, I guess, try to uh, appease their supporters who... Uh, don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade, and at the same time, those supporters who do want to overturn Roe v. Wade, which uh, sort of uh, in the last minute or two here, we've got uh, Amanda Marcotte brings me to your book, Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and the Truth Itself. Uh, you had been uh, scheduled to join us a, a, a few weeks, a few months now, actually, back uh, when this uh, book was first published. Uh, we had to cancel for God knows what the horrible breaking news was at the time. Uh, so I want to try to make up for that a little bit here. Uh, tell me very quickly, if you can, about the book and what it argues at this moment in uh, U.S. history. Well, my argument is that uh, Donald Trump uh, is the epitome of what four decades of conservative politics have been leading towards, which is conservative politics have increasingly become about nothing more than owning the libs, punishing liberals, you know, being angry over political correctness, you know, just this very focused on sticking it to the libs mentality. And, and I think that that's because they can't make any positive arguments for their own political views anymore. And, and, and that's basically the book, and I kind of go through it chapter by chapter and issue by issue, showing how like things like reproductive rights and the environment and labor rights and all sorts of things 
um, gun, the gun issue. There's so much about our politics right now where facts and evidence all point to the liberal conclusion. So the conservative opinion has really been reduced to neener, 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 right? <laughs> right. <laughs> or a wah, wah, as yeah. Corey Lewandowski said, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's and, and, and <laughs> go ahead. Well, no, I was gonna say, and that's something, uh, Amanda, because I know you've been uh, doing this and covering this and covering these right wing nonsense uh, for as long as I have, going back to uh, at least the Bush years, uh, where we saw all of that in action, where we saw all of that sort of come together, and this notion that uh, what was it, uh, Carl Rowe famously said that uh, we create our own reality. Nothing is new here, ultimately. I mean, it's just gotten worse and worse, and it sort of seems to be at a pinnacle at this moment in, in time and history with Kavanaugh in the U.S. Senate looking to sit on the court, which has already been stolen by Republicans. But, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, if we can only get rid of uh, Donald Trump, uh, everything will be okay again. No, this has all been in the work for many years, as I think you discuss in your book. Yeah, and if you watch this hearing, I think, you know, I really do wish uh, more people would watch these kinds of hearings because watching all these Republican senators, most of whom have been in their seats for a long, long time, you see it going on. They're all just sitting there trolling their li- the libs mm-hmm. it, it, over and over again, like Ted Cruz in particular, but, you know, and, and Lindsey Graham especially. But, like, they, they just, a lot of their arguments are sort of based around the idea that they've somehow been done wrong by those unfair liberals making their arguments and whatnot, and and that there's this sense that this is an act of revenge. You know, Chuck Grassley even opened up the hearings by talking about the fact that Ted Kennedy was able to keep Robert Bork from a Reagan appointee from getting onto the Supreme Court, and basically framing this as revenge for that, for this, like, thing that happened three decades ago. <laughs> So, I mean, that's kind of where we're at, and it's not just Trump. Yeah, yeah. and uh, in that case, you also had Republicans agreeing that uh, Bork was inappropriate for the, uh, for the Supreme Court. Uh, very quickly, Amanda, does, does the book see any way out of this morass? Because I'm not sure that I do at this point. Is, is there uh, anything hopeful you offer in the book as far as how this all may end? You know, you're always supposed to end a book with that how to make things better chapter, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I really struggled. But what I can come up with, and I do try to remind myself, is don't forget that Donald Trump actually had three million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. And that was after Hillary Clinton got Hillary Clinton got done wrong badly by the mainstream press for not just the entire campaign, but, you know, the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that that shows that one of the reasons that conservatives behave this way is that they know that not only do liberals have the arguments, but they have the numbers. And therefore, conservatives can only operate by being destructive. And I think we can take some hope in that, you know, and at least hope that that kind of compels people to organize because... I do think we could win. It's just a matter of getting, you know, whipping ourselves into shape. 
Well, if I was any more sh in shape at this point, I'd be dead. Uh, so much whipping. Uh, Amanda Marcotte, longtime politics writer for Salon.com, author of the new book, Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. Uh, find her work, of course, at Salon.com and on the Twitters, at Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for joining us today, Amanda. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Have, have Get some rest. You're going to need it after this week. <laughs> okay, what I'm going to need after this week is some inspiration. We'll take a quick break, and we will come back with exactly that from who? Barack Obama? What? That's next on the broadcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Some guy named Barack Obama. You remember him, Des? I do. Uh, he uh, reappeared today. Thanks, Obama, after uh, being very scarce over the past couple of years, uh, though he says he's going to be uh, more uh, visible, I guess, between now and the November election. Got just a few minutes here, but we could use some inspiration perhaps on the way out the door this week. Here's Barack Obama uh, at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, I think. Yes. Letting us all know that hope happens but not by itself, it's up to all of us. I'm here today because this is one of those pivotal moments when every one of us, as citizens of the United States, need to determine just who it is that we are, just what it is that we stand for. And as a fellow citizen, not as an ex-president, but as a fellow citizen, I'm here to deliver a simple message, and that is that you need to vote because our democracy depends on it. Now, some of you may think I'm exaggerating when I say this November's elections are more important than any I can remember in my lifetime. But just a glance at recent headlines should tell you that this moment really is different. The stakes really are higher. The consequences of any of us sitting on the sidelines are more dire. And it's not as if we haven't had big elections before or big choices to make 
in our history. The fact is, democracy has never been easy, and our founding fathers argued about everything. We waged a civil war. We overcame depression. We've lurched from eras of great progressive change to periods of retrenchment. But here's the good news. In two months, we had the chance, not the certainty, but the chance, to restore some semblance of sanity to our politics. You're the antidote. Your participation and your spirit and your determination, not just in this election, but in every subsequent election and in the days between elections. The biggest threat to our democracy is indifference. The biggest threat to our democracy is cynicism. A cynicism led too many people to turn away from politics and stay home on election day. And if you thought elections don't matter, I hope these last two years have corrected that impression. So if you don't like what's going on right now, and you shouldn't, do not complain. Don't hashtag. Don't get anxious. Don't put your head in the sand. Don't boo. Vote. Vote. The best way to protest is to vote. Not just for senators and representatives, but for mayors and sheriffs and state legislators. If you're tired of politicians who offer nothing but thoughts and prayers after a mass shooting, you've got to do what the Parkland kids are doing. Some of them aren't even eligible to vote yet. They're out there working to change minds and registering people. And they're not giving up until we have a Congress that sees your lives as more important than a campaign check from the NRA. You've got to vote. When you vote, you've got the power to make it easier to afford college and harder to shoot up a school. When you vote, you've got the power to make sure a family keeps its health insurance. You could save somebody's life. And if you do that, something powerful happens. Change happens. Hope happens. Not perfection. Not every bit of cruelty and sadness and poverty and disease suddenly stricken from the earth. There'll still be problems, but, but with each new candidate that surprises you with a victory, that you supported, a, a spark of hope happens. With each new law that helps a kid read or helps uh, a homeless family find shelter or helps a, a veteran get the support he or she has earned, each time that happens, hope happens. With each new step we take in the direction of fairness and justice and equality and opportunity, hope spreads. And that can be the legacy of your generation. You can be the generation that, at a critical moment, stood up and reminded us just how precious this experiment in democracy really is, just how powerful it can be when we fight for it, when we believe in it. I believe in you. I believe you will help lead us in the right direction, and I will be right there with you every step of the way. Thank you, Illinois. God bless you. God bless this country we love. Thank you.
Barack Obama speaking on Friday afternoon at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. Don't boo, vote. There you go. Uh, all right, we got to get out. Thank you very much to Desi Doyen, our producer, to my guest today, Salon's Amanda Marcotte, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I'd love to hear from you. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog, and as ever, we thank those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You are the folks responsible for us continuing with this show as long as we can every day over your public airwaves. Bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.